Hey y'all, this is Grant. Life on Side B is a ministry of Posture Shift, a missiological ministry equipping church leaders and parents on LGBTQ inclusion and care. You can learn more at PostureShift.com. We also want to thank all our patrons who keep the podcast going and growing through their continued giving. If you love this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash life on side B. Now let's get into the episode. that means we're live uh hello yes people are coming in sorry grant go for it sorry <laughs> perfect no that's okay um hello 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 everyone um my name's grant hartley and this is elizabeth and black. i'm elizabeth yes elizabeth black hey everybody uh, and this is the Life on Side B breakout stage at QCF this year. Uh, I'll give you guys a couple minutes while everyone is strolling in, virtually strolling in. Um, and then we'll, we'll get started soon. Exciting. So excited. Grant, we had like, I think we have like 45, no, 50. 54 people oh who have signed up to attend. So I don't think we should wait for all 54 because probably some of those people are like too tired to wake up. They're partying too hard last night, but sure. that's okay. For I'm sure. just really excited that we're going to have a good group of people. Hopefully Absolutely. some good questions and conversations in there. Um, well, before we get started, I think there was a question Um uh, that we were going to answer sort of right out, out of the gate um, for anyone who is curious. I know like language of side A and side B can get kind of confusing um, and it's kind of niche. Um, so uh, wasn't there a question that someone asked? Yes, yes, there's a question. So maybe Grant actually, <clears throat> would you mind sharing like a little bit more about who we are as a podcast and then maybe we can get to the question so there's some context there I think that would help perfect yeah um, okay. yes so uh this is the life on side b podcast we are in I think our fourth season um so we've been doing this for a while uh, Elizabeth just joined us this season so it's very exciting um, very new. Very new. Um, and this is my, I think, third season. Uh, so this season, our theme uh, is uh, the road to resilience. So a lot of what we're focusing on this season uh, is examining how to be resilient, what resilience is, uh, and aspects of resilience in, in different um, conversations with some of our friends and some people we know. So how that fits in with this uh, session is uh, we're talking about shame, overcoming shame and resilience, um, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, yeah. yeah, that's how this, this episode, uh, this session fits into the podcast as a whole. Do you have anything to add? No, no, I'm just, I'm really excited, Grant, like such an important topic to cover. I'm sure it's going to have difficult moments because it's not always fun to talk about shame, but I think really important. So, um, and yeah, if you're here, maybe you're here and this is the first time you've heard about this whole side B thing, or maybe you've heard about it before, but don't know all the ins and outs about it. And we already have someone who asked I think a really great, great question to help bring some clarity. And I am going to pass it over to Grant because mm. I think he's probably tackled it more than I have, but I will interrupt you, Grant, because that's what I do best. Absolutely. So no worries. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to interject. So uh, one of the first questions we actually got yesterday was in your own words, how would you differentiate side A from side B or side A from B and from X? So how would you differentiate it in your own words, Grant? 
Yeah, well, from the get go, I guess I'd say there are a lot of different ways to to talk about those differences. Uh, and so um, side B people have different ways of explaining it. But the way that makes sense to me uh, is specifically about the question um, between side A and side B is about uh, the morality of same sex sex. Uh, and between uh, side B and side X is the, the morality of um, orientation change or the, the possibility or the, um, the value of pursuing or orientation change. So um, side B would say um, two things. First, that um, same-sex sex, sex um, is off limits for those who follow Christ. And they'd also say that orientation change is not a moral requirement and it's um, unlikely uh, and maybe not even desirable. Um, so side A would differ from side B and that side A would say same-sex sex can be morally good under certain circumstances and then would differ from um, side X. Side B would differ from side X in that um, side X would say that orientation change is a moral requirement to pursue, uh, which is something side B people do not believe. So that's, that's how I would usually describe it. Um, I think um, it's helpful to keep in mind that those things are pretty specific, especially when it comes to side A, side B stuff. So it's not about relationships. It's not about um, queer culture. It's not about any of those things. It's mostly just about that specific question of of sexual activity and the morality of it. Um, but yeah, also yeah, some agree. people have often fled side X movements. So there's there's a real difference between those two, even though sometimes it like it can seem from the outside that they blend together. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I think honestly from the outside they all blend together. They all blend yeah. together. I think, you know, we a lot of folks probably even here, you know, a lot of us have grown up in the Christian world and, um, you know, have heard the same message as it relates to like queer, queerness as it stands. Um, so I think for everybody outside of that, they just assume that, oh, it's mutually exclusive. You can't be gay and Christian. And any variation of that is basically the same and maybe I'm wrong or weird. Um, so I think the way that I, I would differentiate it, and even this is like just an overarching, probably just way too broad description, but I think it's really about like, it's a differentiation between like who you are and what you do in a sense. And so like for me, I consider myself side B because I identify as queer. I identify as bisexual. That hasn't changed. I, like you said, Grant, I have no desire for that to change, but we'll get into that when we talk about shame. Sorry, doggy behind me. Um, but, you know, where, yeah, like you mentioned side X, it's more like the, the issue is who you are in that do you identify with that that culture and that like do you take on that identity in a sense um so they would differentiate themselves from side b because they don't identify with their orientation at all mm -hmm. um and then and i think that there obviously there's variations in that um and then the difference again between like side a and side b I think is more like behavioral in a way and not again, not because I think side B people don't have sex and side A people all have sex. <laughs> um, maybe, yeah, that's not the case, <laughs> but it's just like, like you said, what do we kind of hold as, as a theological truth when it comes to sexual behavior or like sexual interaction? So sure. yeah, that, that would be how I see it. If anyone else has a really good definition, please put it in the chat and yeah. maybe we can like it talk it over 
or mention it because I would love to hear from others. But thanks, Grant, for for that. Um, Grant, also, before we dive into shame, who are you? Yes. Well, okay. Before I, before I do that, I also should say, I, we forgot to say this at the beginning, but uh, if you need uh, captions, there's an option for that at the bottom uh, for subtitles. Uh, we were both told to say that at the beginning. We both completely uh, forgot. Sorry. Um, we love you all. That's really terrible. Um, but yes. Oh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. My name is Grant. Um, I am a freelance writer. I've been on the podcast for a while. Um, and I think a lot about the closet. Um, those are the, um, the closet as a death and resurrection metaphor is my, the thing I think about the most, which plays a lot into our topic of shame. Um, and then Elizabeth, who are you? Yes. Yes. So I am Elizabeth and Um, I'm originally from Maryland. I live in New York City now and have for almost a decade or about a decade. Um, And I work as um, the co-founder and president of a new organization called Kaleidoscope. Um, And essentially, we are a missions and ministry organization that shares shares Jesus and the gospel in contextual ways to our queer family. So that's us. Um, Okay, Grant, let's dive in. Let's talk about shame. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, Okay, yeah, go for it, go for it. Yeah, I think a helpful place to start, it's hard to sort of know where to start when it comes to discussing shame. So I guess we just start where we are. What What have been our experiences of shame um, as queer people, as Christians, as queer Christians, as side B queer Christians, what role has shame played in your life? (sighs) Um, So I think, unfortunately, shame has been a big part of like my life as it relates to my sexual identity and also just my emotional health. Um, I've realized in the past like five years how much I have depended on shame to make decisions in my life and just just to like live. Um, And through some good counseling and just friends and help trying to shake off the shame that has just cemented itself on me for years. Um, But I think as it relates to my identity, like my sexual identity, um, I I would say like, it started again, it started off shame. Like I recognized that something was different about me um, and that I was attracted to girls when I was probably like 11 or 12. Um, and I remember I had this like existential week of like, I love God, but I also know that like, I like chicks. So what do I do? Because I thought, again, they're mutually exclusive. And if, if I choose, if I choose my attraction towards girls, or if I accept it, then I can't be a Christian anymore. Um, So I just didn't tell anyone for that whole week. And I tried to like suss it all out in my head and figure out how I could, you know, how, I don't know how I could change my mind, whatever. And then eventually the, my own like self shame was bothering me so deeply that I wanted to talk to my mom about it. And, um, so I, I tried to come out to my mom, but that was one of the most shameful experiences of my life. You know, just like my mom just saying, no, it's not true. Just denying all of it, like go back to bed, you're fine. And then I recognized in that moment, like this is way too shameful to talk about. You can't mention this to anyone else anymore. Like no one wants to hear it from you and it's too hard to even like vocalize. Um, So I just kept it to myself for over 30 years. Like I'm 35. I know I look good, but 35. So, so like, I, I just like buried, buried everything about my sexual identity under shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just, it was a heavy burden um, 
to bear. And it's, yeah, it's just really sad how much shame is a part of this experience. So I don't know, Grant, what would you say the same? Like how, how has shame been a part of your journey? Yeah, I think queer folks, um, maybe not universally, but so many of us spend at least a few formative years wrestling through some really profound shame um, in in the closet. Uh, and I'm no exception. Um, I think I had a similar experience to you. Um, I, in addition to wrestling privately with trying to understand sexuality, I think I was also just a kind of um, soft, tender, sensitive boy. Um, and so there were, there was some parts of shame that I wrestled through that were sort of tangentially related to sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like I just wasn't very athletic. I, I wasn't very, um, interested in sports. I, I, um, wasn't, I didn't measure up to the kind of standard of masculinity in, in the culture that I grew up in. Yeah. And so that was a lot of the shame I, I wrestled with. And then when I found out that I was um, attracted to men, I think that sort of compounded. Um, something I do think about, especially as side B folks, is, and this is, I guess I'm getting into something maybe touchy uh, right at the get-go. Get, get into it. But get into it. I think side B folks um, might wrestle with this in a unique way um, because it can be so easy to let, like you said earlier, let shame dictate my sexual ethics mm -hmm. rather than love. <laughs> and so um, at the beginning of my journey, when I was just discovering um, how to reconcile my faith and my sexuality. I think I was making theological decisions because I was ashamed, not because I thought they were true. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I just let my shame point me spiritually when I, when I should have been letting Jesus and his love for me direct me and guide me spiritually. That's not, um, I, I think that's not true for all side B folks by any means. Um, I think it is something that we, we might have to suss out more um, because, um, well, I mean, for lots of, for lots of reasons, but um, yeah, that's something I, I wrestled with. And I think I still wrestle with sometimes is how do I, how do I untangle the theological decisions I'm making that make my life difficult in some ways um, from shame that just wants me to feel bad all the time. Yeah. Grant, honestly, like I would love to really sit on that for a little bit, like talk, talk about it a little bit more because I think it, there is some unique qualities that that goes along with the side B experience. But I would also say that probably a lot of people on every part of the spectrum mm -hmm. of this experience like has it so you know I and I want to really like touch on on your experience particularly like even now that I'm I'm sure you feel less shame probably than you did when you first came out mm -hmm. like how do you how do you maneuver Shame, or do you even experience shame as late to um, how you communicate your sexuality to people, Christian, yeah. not Christian? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I think I think all of us still experience shame, even when we have um, left so much of it behind. And I think part of that is because like we live in a world where sin still has a lot of power um, and we experience shame just by like living in this world. I also think there's a difference between like experiencing shame, um, being shamed from the outside yeah. 
and like experiencing like shame on the inside agreeing with the shame that has been placed on you um so i think those are still things i i wrestle with and i don't think i'll ever be completely finished but i i have experienced less shame now in my life than ever before yeah um, yeah that's that's sort well, of where I'm at. Two, two good distinctions i think also for us to talk about um is like shame that has been given to us or like shame that has been offered from the outside versus internal shame, like shame, like internal homophobia, shame that we just decide that it's important for us to, to mull over um, or to adopt. And I think they both hit very differently sometimes, you know, and um, they influence each other as well. Like if I experience people shaming me or questioning me, then, then I'll tend to like internalize that shame myself, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I definitely, but, but it's interesting too, like, again, coming from a place of like a baby gay or a late bloomer and all of this is that I feel, for me, I feel less shame now than I ever did um, because I, like, am honest. I think honesty, like, we'll get to this, but I feel like honesty in terms of, like, how do we, how are we resilient? Like, how do we restore ourselves from shame? I think honesty is one of the keys to that because, and it's hard and it hurts, but like being able to be open and honest about experiences, about feelings, about questions even. And I think that that's also one that we don't always touch on. Like we feel like as, as queer Christians, we have to have it all together. I think for side B people also like, um, and I'd love, again, love to hear from side A'ers here, but we feel like we have to have it all together. Like you can't mess up. You have to have your theology as straight as humanly possible, <laughs> no pun intended, yep. straight, straight as humanly possible so that you can have the like best defense ever for anyone who might ask you, wait a minute, why are you saying you're gay and a Christian but you're not dating anyone or you don't want to get married or like, what's the deal where you're in like a mixed orientation marriage. Like, why would you ever do that to yourself? And it's like, you have to guard yourself from shame before the conversation even starts because once it does, like uh, it almost feels like darts, you know what I mean? And unintentional. Like, I don't think everyone's like trying to attack but you have to fight that internal shame and you have to fight the history of external shame that brought you even to this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, something I've thought about recently when it comes to our experiences of external shame and sort of steeling ourselves against that shame is the, the kind of standards that queer Christians are held to are so much higher mm. uh, so they're they're sort of outrageous so one of my friends um he likes to talk about uh the sin of publicity like queer right. people um like one of the standards that we're held to is not just that we have to be uh like unimpeachable morally yes um, but we also just have to be really quiet. <laughs> like people would rather not hear even about our virtue. Um, they would rather just us be silent. Um, so that's a standard. I think we have a, a standard of perfection. Um, we have a standard of uh, accuracy in language. Like we have to have a dang theological degree to talk about yeah. our experience without being attacked. And even if we do have theological degrees, it, it doesn't matter. Like, um, yeah. Oh I my gosh, dude. Speaking of which, I have to just interject. So even last night, I, I'm in a queer Bible study and the person who was teaching was sharing like, oh my gosh, on fire. She was on fire. And she was just sharing about how she is one 
one class away from getting her master's at the seminary she's in and two professors found out about her identity and about her relationship that she's in and they were like I think it's best that you not come back to college (laughs) and I'm just thinking like wow you know like it's true it unless you hide everything about you and carry that self-shame you have to be perfect Mm -hmm. or otherwise it's like you should have just shut up and never say anything like you said or carry that shame straight out the door yeah yeah and I think that's why over the years I've undergone a sort of process of being radicalized in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. like I used to think I used to believe (laughs) that if I measured up in these specific ways that people would listen. Yes. And I used to think mm-hmm. that, um, I mean, I repent of this, but I used to think that my theology would make people listen to me. And if I yes. had my theology right, then they, they, wouldn't, um, they wouldn't push back or they wouldn't mm. try to silence me or they wouldn't reject me. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter what I believe. Yeah. It doesn't matter what I believe about sexual ethics. It doesn't matter how virtuous I live. Um, homophobia, queer antagonism just yeah. wants me dead. Yeah. So like, why, why, would I, why would I fight against shame on shame's terms? Come on. Why, I mean, because shame is a liar. Shame. Mm promises that eventually like I might get to a point where I'm free of it if I submit to the rules that it sets for me but she's a liar (laughs) she's a liar I'm never gonna I'm never going to be able to be free from shame on Shane's terms yes yes so good I remember when we were like preparing for this one of the things we were talking about was just that that like we will never be good enough for anyone. So whether somebody is, you know, saying things or doing things that uh, result in self-shame or shaming us, that it, it almost doesn't matter because we'll, we'll never be good enough for them. We'll never be good enough for anyone. So the best thing I think for us to do is to live our lives shamelessly with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I, I was, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of this like thing that I worked in Jewish ministry for a long time and my husband's Jewish and people used to come up to him on the street and were like, oh, you're not Jewish anymore. Cause you believe in Jesus. Like you can't be Jewish anymore. And he would, in the beginning, it's like a lot, him and others would like try to defend it. Well, I am still Jewish because I celebrate the holidays and my mom's Jewish and my dad's Jewish. And like, this is a part of my identity. And I eat like matzah and gefilte fish. And it's like, there was nothing that he could say that could convince anyone that was, you know, saying these things to him that he was still Jewish. So eventually, you know, and it didn't take long for him because he's just kind of like, he doesn't care what other people think. I wish that I did. I carried the amount of shame that he does because it's basically zero. But, you know, eventually he's like, I don't care if you think that I'm not Jewish anymore. If you think all I am is some kind of ignorant Christian who's turned their back from their Jewishness, fine. But like, this is morbid trigger warning. But like, if the Holocaust was to happen again, the Nazis are not going to walk around and say, um, excuse me, are you Jewish? But do you believe in Jesus, though? Oh, you do? Never mind. You're fine. Don't worry. You're one of us. Like, that's not how this works. I think the same goes for, you know, the queer community or queer identity. As Christians, though, we might have our unique senses or unique experiences of shame it doesn't change the fact or we want to be as pious as possible because then maybe people will accept us. It doesn't change the fact that when you're walking down the street or when you're, you know, at a gay bar or you're doing something that's outwardly queer, that that's what people see and they don't care 
how you live out your queerness, that's who you are, point blank. So like, why are we hold on to that? That just sounds like a ball and chain to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I still do it. <laughs> I, I sound like I'm over it, but I still do it. You know, like with, with my ministry, when I talk to pastors about what I do, I always jump first to, you know, but let me tell you about my theology. And it's like, why do I have to do that? Like, I don't want to do that. Or when I share with people, my orientation that I'm bisexual, I always jump to but I'm still like committed to my husband. Like I'm not sleeping around or I'm not, it's like, why do I have, no one else has to do that. Like no one tells me that they're heterosexual and I automatically assume, Oh, I bet they're cheating on their spouse. Like, that's not fair. I don't need to carry this. For sure. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the, um, the, the foundation for solidarity amongst all queer Christians is that we're all united in that at least <laughs> like we for i mean for sure we're united in in the essentials of faith uh, yes let's be united yes um but we're also united in an experience of um of resistance i mean we we mm. we there's there's nothing that we can do to escape the kind of pushback that we will inevitably receive. So um, I think that that opens up a lot of possibility for the kinds of conversations that we can all have queer Christians across ideological lines. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to, I want to acknowledge, I want to jump to a question. I also want to acknowledge um, someone in the chat, Brandon, that that word came like perfectly uh, is a perfect fit um, for what I've had for 56 years. Thank you. So Brandon, we feel you. Thank you for being a pioneer for all of us. May God relieve you of all your shame. Um, but Grant, let me let me say this, throw this question out there. So someone asked, how do side people prevent themselves from entering into shame when they refrain from sexual activity? Mm. And I don't really refrain from sexual activity. That's so fair. sorry, Grant. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you, baby. That's side note. That's that's one of the reasons why framing side B as um, just about celibacy exactly is problematic because there are side B people who are not celibate. Um, so yeah, no, well, and let me like say as well, like there are side B people who are bisexual pansexual like Mm -hmm. so I didn't like for the record I didn't just like settle Mm -hmm. for a man you know like that this was my husband I love dearly and I am in a happy happy fulfilling sexual and romantic relationship with him and I think because a lot of times the bisexual conversation doesn't happen as much Mm -hmm. it we kind of forget oh yeah, like maybe this is a mixed orientation marriage, but it's not because they're like, oh, well, I might as well marry this person of the opposite sex. Like, no, I, I happily got into this thing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So yeah. Um, What do you think? What do you think of that question? So the question is how, um, to process through shame when it comes to refraining from sexual activity. Yes. I think, um, a lot of my journey over the past many years has been moving from making theological decisions out of fear and shame to making them out of love. So the question is not what punishment will I receive for doing this bad thing? And like that be the guiding question for the, the, theological decisions I'm making. I mean, that's something I, I think about, I guess, like we, punishment is real and, and doing like sinning means we'll, we'll endure some kind of um, discipline. But I, I'm trying to move more into making decisions about what I believe and how to live my life because I love Jesus 
and I want to do what he tells me to do. That's really scary for some people, especially people um, in power, because that open that that actually places a lot of emphasis on me listening to Jesus and not me listening to people telling me what to do. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I think there's a place for listening to people in authority. I absolutely, I mean, I just entered the Catholic church. That was a big part of the reason. Um, but I think there, there's nothing that can replace listening to the voice of Jesus who yeah. calls me beloved. And so if I'm making decisions out of love, um, then celibacy is not like something I'm doing fearfully, anxiously, but it's something um, I'm doing to show my love um, to someone who loves me so deeply, um, more, more deeply than anyone else has ever loved me. Um, so that's the main thing. Um, yeah. Also, this is not to subtract from that, um, but of also discerning um, if I have some kind of experience of gray sexuality, um, which would mean that like, um, I, I heard it described like this. Um, it, the ACE conversation is something we should definitely talk about more sometime. I, I hope later in the season, I think uh, we're actually gonna talk about it. Yeah, we're gonna talk about it. I'm so excited. Me too. Um, but someone described it as um, for, for many people, sex is a step toward intimacy with another person. But for me, most times or oftentimes it feels like actually a step away from intimacy. And so wow, wow. I like, part of me just really doesn't want to have sex um, because I'm very satisfied <laughs> with, um, with the kind of intimacy I can have with a person without sex. Um, to mm. clarify, most side B people are not ace. <laughs> so this is just uh, my personal experience. And I don't even know how much of a factor that is. I think celibacy and asexuality for me kind of blend together at points. Um, but yeah, that's how I've been processing um, how to um, pursue my sexual ethics without shame being the motivating factor. Yeah, oh, so good. Oh my gosh, I love it. And I'm, I'm so excited because like, I love that you mentioned great sexuality, ace experience, because I think there's also so much to learn there as well. One about shame, but also like when you were talking about for many people, sex like brings them into a deeper sense of intimacy. And for you, you kind of see it as honestly, like as someone who doesn't identify as ace, I think at times the same way mm -hmm. so like it's it's actually like relieving my shame just having this conversation with you to say like maybe it's okay if I'm not as horny as society should make me think I am at all times <laughs> like maybe yeah. it's okay that we can just be ourselves sometimes and we don't have to do something or not do something to prove to prove ourselves to other people. So thank you, Grant, for, for that and relieving me of that shame. Um, I have another question and we can both kind of tackle this. Um, so someone said, my ex broke up with me because she didn't like my Christian side. I'm really sorry. Mm -hmm. um, I, felt, uh, I felt a lot of shame after this. What can we do? Um, what can we do to let go of the shame? Um, since we already live in boxes for in the box of being gay. So how do we let go of like the shame of being a Christian and gay when we're already gay? Like, isn't it enough? Mm, yeah. You, I mean, you want to tackle that first? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm really sorry um, that you experienced this, but I'm sure it still really hurts. And I think, you know, not that this makes it any better, but I'm, I know a lot of people who've experienced the same thing, um, gay, straight and everything in between of like the, just the Christian identity was too much. Um, and it's, it's always kind of a risk that you take in any relationship, um, but definitely something, a reality of a risk when you're dating somebody who isn't, you know, in the faith. 
Um, I think like you said, Grant, the real key in my mind, and again, like going with our theme of resilience is to really keep our eyes on Jesus. Like sounds cliche, but it's the truth. Like when we allow Jesus to call us by who he's made us to be, when he, when we allow Jesus to call us by our names, Mm -hmm. like there's something about that, that is so empowering. And like, it just reminds, it's a reminder that that identity is key to who I am. Like my faith, not like the church, not, you know, the cultural experience, but like the person of Christ is so compelling that I, I'm okay. I'm okay with this. Like I, I can check two boxes and walk in pride and it doesn't mean it's not going to be easy. And, you know, sadly, it doesn't mean we're not going to be rejected sometimes, mm-hmm. but is it worth, is it worth it to be able to still sit, um, you know, fully in front of our God? Um, when I left my last ministry, um, I remember packing up with my husband at our apartment because we lived in like a parsonage and um, we're packing up and we were so deeply hurt by the way we were treated and the lies that were being spoken about us and just the ugliness. And I looked at him and I was like, dude, I'm, I'm close to calling this Christian thing quits. Like I want to be out of here. But we both said, but we know the truth. Like we know too much. We know how good Jesus is. We know the work that he's done for us and continues to do on our behalf. We can't just walk away because we've been so deeply hurt. Like we have to fight the good fight. Yeah. So I, I, I think that can be applied to all of these situations, including relationships. Like our, our main relationship is with Jesus. I don't care what side we're on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So let's hold fast to that. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's how I would I would kind of talk about it. Um, Grant, I don't know if you want to speak on it, but there also are a ton more questions going around. So what do you think? Should we like keep going, or do you want to yeah. add anything? I well, um, I mean, I I co-sign um, what you've said hmm. um, about that. I there is a question that um, that just came in on the chat that I saw that's addressed to me, and I would love to to tackle it. Go for it, yes. Um, so Mary um, asked, "How do you confront the fear of loneliness or never having that partner by your side? Oftentimes, this feels like too much of a sacrifice for me. I feel like for true fulfillment, I need to have that relational need met." That what a good a question. Great question. Yeah. There, there are two things that I would say in response to that. Um, first of all, uh, I, I feel like I can have a relational need met in my life and live in integrity with my sexual ethics. Um, that, that might be more of a tension for other people, and I want to recognize that. But uh, for me, I, I experience profound intimacy in my life in a group of friends and one-on-one with people um, that I'm really, really thankful for. And honestly, sometimes uh, blows me away um, because in the closet, I, that kind of relationship wasn't possible. Um, shame kept me isolated from people. Um, also, Side B people um, have a lot of different perspectives on what the relational possibilities are for people um, with a, uh, what is often called a traditional sexual ethic. And so a lot of my friends are partnered. Um, so they uh, are pursuing celibacy as a couple. Um, I don't see, I don't see much wrong with that actually. I, I think there are probably some dangers in it um, if, if someone is trying to pursue celibacy, but 
Um, that's something I, I sometimes long for. And um, mm. I, I'd say it's a live possibility in my life. Um, so I, it can be met generally with friends. It can be met um, specifically with another person. Of course, it's met most truly and most ultimately in, in Jesus and my relationship with him. But I don't want to Jesus juke everybody. Um, I get it. People have relational needs for, for human beings. And God uses human beings to meet those relational needs. Um, but also, as a second answer, something else I've been thinking about lately is I've been reading a lot of Thomas Merton. Um, Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day are spiritual mom and dad for me. Um, so they, they're like representing sort of two poles, the contemplative, the active. Um, I love them both. But Thomas Merton talks a lot about the importance of solitude. And it's something that I'm not as exceptionally good at, but I think is really key to addressing loneliness. So solitude is not isolation. Solitude is communion with God and through God with all people. Um, by pursuing solitude and spending time with God, I think that frees us from the sort of anxious need to attach ourselves to another person too quickly uh, without being defined ourselves. I, I'm also thinking of Rainer Maria Rilke, um, who talks a lot about the importance of, of being defined as individuals before merging with another person. And so over the years, solitude has been really important to me. And I think that's a way that we can pursue celibacy without shame by, by spending time alone with God and through God with other people. I think solitude often scares us, um, especially queer folks, because solitude looks a lot like isolation from the outside. It reminds us of a closet experience and we have bad wow. experiences with that. Um, so we've experienced a lot of isolation. So we, we want to run away from anything that looks like that. But I think they're different. And I think that solitude can actually help us um, manage loneliness, help us um, manage uh, or, um, or uh, pursue relationship better. Mm -hmm. so that's mm -hmm. what I'd say for all that. But no, that's so good. So good. And I, I think something kind of to answer one of the last questions too, like how do you combat or deal with shame um, when you think about sexual activity? And then this last question, like maintaining celibacy. I think a lot of it is also changing the way we view things. Like perspective is also everything. Perspective influences shame greatly. If you feel like you're alone, then that's where you're going to sit. If you feel like you are not worth it, that's where you're going to be. So I think a lot of it in this conversation as it relates to like side B kind of life and theology is if we think of um, our theology as oppressive, if we think of our theology as shameful and um, sad, <laughs> then that's where we're going to stay. And I'll be honest, there are a lot of people on the side B world and community that I think are sitting there. And I, I walk away from it and I'm like, I do kind of feel sorry for you because I don't know if you're truly experiencing joy mm -hmm. and you're just looking at it from this lens of like, woe is me, this is the cross I have to bear. But isn't there also aspects of like self-discipline that are really good? Like, isn't there aspects of conviction and then follow through that should be celebrated? Like, we don't have to just look at it and be like, oh my gosh, this is so sad. And like mentioning Ray, like, it's also not everything. Like, it isn't. I, as, as a married woman who has her fair amount of sex, like, it's not the end all be all. And I think, again, perspective, if, if that's what a lot of people are fixated on, um, you know, I can't have this level of intimacy with, intimacy with somebody, therefore, this is so sad. Then you're, you might, 
it might be helpful to change your perspective and say like, I made this choice and this choice, I'm going to find ways for this choice to give me life. I'm going to find ways for this choice and this amount of self-discipline to like spur me on to greatness and to craft my personality and to give me opportunities to give and to be intimate with a broader community than I would if I was just in one singular relationship. And I promise, I mean, the scripture says that when it talks about singleness versus, you know, relationships and companionship, like I didn't understand until I got married when Paul talked about your like priorities are going to get divided until I got married and had kids. And I was like, it is so true. It is hard to find time with Jesus. It's hard to find time to serve other people from a place of like wholehearted dedication to God. And I'm, I'm envious of my friends who can do that. So when I, one of my good friends um, is single gay and she always tells me like, don't feel sorry for me. I don't, you dare feel sorry for me. She said over and over again. And I'm like, thank you for telling me that may the world hear, like, don't feel sorry for us. Like we have joy. Yeah. So don't give me that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Grant. I think one of my friends, um, a lot of side B people have the experience of feeling like pushed or like constrained forced into their their sexual ethics from the outside which i think is very valid like if if i hadn't heard um the sexual ethics that were taught to me growing up um i'm not i I don't know if i would have sought them out um so in some way i do feel sort of forced into it but i think there has to be a point where you actually choose them back where you sort of the the locus of control moves to you and not outside of you and so um there came a point where i had to like believe my sexual ethics not because i was afraid of consequences not because i was afraid of being wrong yes um, yes yes but because i saw beauty in them come on oh like I, I think what you're saying is so true. I think what, I mean, side B is not reducible to celibacy. Um, there's mixed orientation marriages, both marriage and celibacy are constraining. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and, and both of them offer real experiences of beauty and love. And so, um, being able to be aware of both of those in whatever life I choose um, even living a, an unrestrained life, making all the decisions I want to make with no other outside factor, that ends up being a kind of constraint because you lose out on the things that you, that you, cho- that you don't choose. Um, so being constrained is not, you, you don't really have a choice whether you're constrained or not. It's finding the constraints that, that are actually freeing for you and not the constraints that are, are bondage for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Thank you. Those poetry, honestly, I love it. I love it when you share. Um, So here's another question from Ryan. um, And I'm going to try to answer this really quick, even though I think it deserves a lot of time, but Ryan says, what are some particular steps that church congregations can take to confront shame that it's queer congregants face. Mm. And um, so I, I teach on this all the time. This is like some of the main things that I talk about when I'm training pastors. And I think the biggest thing is representation. It, and again, just honesty and truth. So I think pastors, I think congreg- or you know regular lay people in the church, other leaders, we just need to acknowledge that there are queer people in our in our pews, um, that this is a valid experience that people have. And we need to say it, talk about it from the pulpit, um, have affinity groups and have community groups for people with, you know, living, you know, queer lives or queer experience. And like just making people feel like I'm recognized here 
and I don't have to defend myself and I don't have to hide. I think that that honestly makes a world of difference and there's way more to it, but I think that's kind of my short answer. Um, yeah. So I, I hope your church can grow in those places. Um, I have a couple other questions, Grant, and I think a lot of them are related to, you know, more like side B stuff. So let's see how much we can get in in the next um, five minutes. So someone mentioned um, sometimes side B is sort of a stepping stone for people on their way from side X to side A. Mm -hmm. How do you hold that tension of that being true? Uh, but also it's where some people are in their lives. So how do you kind of deal with that? For sure. Great. You want to jump on that? Yeah. I mean, it sort of reminds me a lot of my friends, um, are in the Anglican tradition. And I think the Anglican tradition <laughs> sometimes wrestles with that too. Like, um, Anglican and Episcopalian churches can sometimes be stepping stones on, on like from low church people on their way to high church traditions or from high church people on their way to lower church traditions. So sometimes there's an experience of it being a thoroughfare more than a destination. Um, but I don't, I don't think um, that I, ha I have a lot of Anglican friends who have found like found their home in that tradition and, and feel very settled in it. So I think one story doesn't invalidate the other. Um, I, I understand why side B can be a stepping stone for people and that makes total sense. Um, it's not a stepping stone for me. I've, I feel very settled in it. I've had lots of opportunities to change my sexual ethics and um, against all odds, here Is I am. Is it because you're just so freaking cute? Is that I why mean, you had all those Stop I know. <laughs> so hard out there. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> um, yeah. But did you have any other thoughts on that? No, no. I thought that was really good. I was just, honestly, I'm thinking about another question that I really want to talk about. And I think this, this could be our closer. Sure. Um, and thanks to all who have sent questions, yeah, even some so that good. we haven't even gotten to yet. If Honestly, I'll just say this. Some of these questions we are definitely going to be talking about later on in the season. Mm -hmm. um, if you're looking for references, listen to the podcast because we're going to have some amazing side A, side B folks as guest hosts coming in and sharing their stories, um, writers, people who are like deeply in this conversation. So if you want references, listen to the podcast. Um, and if you want more clarity on side B, you know, compared to other sides, also listen to our podcast. We continuously kind of clarify and go through it. But this question is great. So Grant, what are some ways um, that side B is life-giving? Why and what are some ways that side B is life-giving? Yes, well, recently, um, this past year, uh, the Religion News Service posted an article about side B culture, which featured a picture of you um, <laughs> right front and center. They're both cute. What can I say? <laughs> um, it talked a lot about um, the side B culture and the benefits of it. Um, so I think side B culture has been, been a huge gift um, to me. So um, I, I would like to go into more specifics, but I feel like we're running out of time. So sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's okay. We, uh, I'll, I'll add something in, a, in this minute. Yes, I agree. I think culture, community is life-giving. Um, you know, I think it's also feeling like I, I can believe what I believe and love that and feel confident in that like that is life-giving to me that I don't have to and again I'm not comparing myself to other people like everyone has their journey but where I'm at is like I feel really comfortable and confident in my faith in my belief and Lord knows things will change I hope so in many different ways mm -hmm. but I just love that I, I don't have to wrestle 24 seven about it. 
Like I can just be, I can just be whether someone accepts it or not. Like I can just be and, and do that boldly before God. So that is so life-giving for me. Um, And to see my friends like making such beautiful lives out of their side B-ness is also really fun to watch. Like, I just love it. Um, So yeah. Anyways, folks, we are like down to the wire. Thank you all for jumping in, for being great audience members. And we hope this isn't the last time you listen to us. Please join us on Life on Side B. Listen to the podcast. Yes. And Milk and Honey. Grant has Milk and Honey, another podcast that's fantastic. Check out Kaleidoscope because we're doing great things. So thanks, everyone. Really a blessing. Bye. Bye.